0: You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Matt Simon is a science journalist for Wired Magazine. Thank you for joining me, Matt.
1: And thank you for having me, and into your home. I promise not to take anything on the way out, maybe except for the pugs. (laughs) I will consider taking those, for sure.
0: His new book is The Wasp That Brainwashed the Caterpillar, Evolution's Most Unbelievable Solutions to Life's Biggest Problems. Thank you for joining me, Matt. And thank you. This is a collection of some of the most bizarre and horrifying critters I've ever read about, outside of science fiction, but these are not science fiction. I, I do believe that some of the creatures in this movie have, in, in this book, have inspired movies, in particular
1: Alien. Yeah. Um, that, if I remember correctly, was an isopod?
0: Either the isopod or maybe it was the uh, the, the, uh glyphantiles. The, the, the wasp, oh, Megan. yeah. Glyphopontillis, <laughs> yeah. Uh But let's uh, lat, ratchet it back. You divided this book um, into uh, some categories. Talk about dividing it into categories and, and getting the illustrations.
1: Yeah. So um, instead of just kind of throwing all of these creatures out there in a book, we decided to group them for certain problems so say (laughs) needing to eat enough uh needing to get laid to pass on your genes to the next generation needing to find shelter because that's not necessarily just a human pursuit um for instance there is a fish a particular fish called the pearl fish which makes its home out of sea cucumber anuses it crawls up the sea cucumber and eats its gonads and its intestines and things like that um and carves out a little home for itself so there are lots of different solutions to life's big problems out there. Um, as for the illustrations, they're done by an amazing illustrator named Vladimir Stankovich, uh, And uh, Penguin had wanted from the very start to illustrate this really well. And they have put so much time and effort into making it so beautiful. To the point where I don't even care about the words anymore. Let's like, <laughs> just uh, look at the illustrations and take those for what they're worth.
0: They're they're stunning and but I think the, the writing is really fun and it's interesting. Um, each piece includes uh, a bit about the uh, the animal itself, but also you take us to other animals and and put on all these little insets. I I, I really like the way the book was put together. Was this uh, your idea from the beginning?
1: It was not. We um, uh, my agent and I were talking about doing this book. Uh, we actually didn't have this idea. He got this idea from another. Uh, publisher who suggested it who ended up not even bidding on the book um so we took that idea and they didn't want it for whatever reason that's fine um but Penguin picked it up and uh it, it was it's just been so fun to write that book and I hope that comes through
0: oh yeah it's a it's a blast it's a blast to read it's really fun and funny it's a it's a page turner too great thank you uh, page turner that is so long as you uh want to have a
1: nightmare every yes. night it's,
0: it's it's nightmare a night for like a month and a half it or so is. there's some
1: there's a couple of cute and cuddly ones in there but you're right it is almost entirely creatures that are just that really show what a horrific place nature is it's amazing and it's it's brutality it's because i mean this is what drives evolution is the fact that you're going to die in a horrible way. I hate to break that. Um, We humans, having removed ourselves largely from the food chain, don't have to worry about getting eaten by lions and things like that anymore, but a whole lot of things do. Even lions fall victim to parasites and things like that, so nothing is safe. That sounds really negative, (laughs) but I want to make it clear that it's a beautiful process that that Darwin is able to tease out in his theory of natural selection.
0: You uh, start with... Antichinus, and this is a marsupial. Marsupials are really weird Yes. anyway. This thing is extremely bizarre, especially the poor male of the species. Tell us about
1: uh, the problems of
0: reproduction for Antichinus.
1: Yes, Antichinus. Um, So Antichinus, of course, lives in Australia, the land of not only marsupials, but very, very strange creatures. This one uh, has a very short breeding season. It's about two weeks long. Um, and because the point of life for any living thing is to propagate their genes, send it on to the next generation, they go through some pretty extreme lengths to do that. Uh, what Antikinus does, the males run around for two straight weeks. They don't eat. They use up the fat reserves in their body. Uh, they hardly sleep. They bounce from partner to partner, just sex 24 hours a day almost. Um, I believe the, the record for one session is something like 14 hours. So the problem with that is if you're not eating, you're not sleeping, your testosterone levels are just astronomical. The body starts to break down. So its hair starts to fall out. It bleeds internally, and it goes <laughs> blind sometimes at the same time that it's still trying to get laid. And it's just it's full tilt. Full tilt sex for two weeks. At the end of that mating season, every single male will have died. What's great about that for the females is that, of course, there's nobody hassling them non-stop for two weeks, but they also are now finding themselves alone in a forest with plenty of food. So they are feeding their young uh, because marsupials are born very underdeveloped. They need a lot of milk production. Um, and what seems to be the case is that the females are actually responsible for the short breeding season to begin with. It seems like over evolutionary time, it has actually synced up with the abundance of food in the spring. So the females, in their way, have really pulled one on the males. who Every single one dies, and they, they don't live for a whole year. The, the, the young will grow up. The males will be something like 11 months old, and they'll start going at it, and then they'll die. That's it. Less than a year of life. While the females go about their thing, which I think is fantastic.
0: Who says that sex education doesn't work? You right. teach this story. Exactly. <laughs> I think that exactly. it's going to be uh, quite a, a come up. And s- yeah, you next take us to the anglerfish. Yes. This is a a really grotesque creature. I mean, this is like
1: something out of the movie Alien. Really is. It is uh, along the same lines of uh, the females really pulling one over on the men. Uh, <laughs> so the the anglerfish you've probably seen before. It's this almost spherical, comically spherical fish uh, with these huge teeth, and it's got that pointy thing off the top of its head. It's actually a modified fin that acts as a lure. It's a bioluminescent lure that it not only uses to attract prey, but also to signal to its mates. The problem in the deep sea is that you're going to have a hard time finding not only prey, but the opposite sex. And the male anglerfish look nothing like the females. They're tiny, they're minuscule. The females can weigh something like 500,000 times more than these tiny males. The males never eat. Um, Their only purpose in life is to find a female and mate with her. And they do that in an interesting way. Because you are going to have a hard time finding your mate, you want to hold on to her at all costs. So what the male does is that he bites onto her body. And when he does that, Enzymes break down his face and actually fuse him to the female, and he taps into her bloodstream and gets nutrients that way, and he'll live the rest of his life like that, decades that these fish might be living. Um, What's nice about that linking up is that now their hormones are linked up. Whenever she releases her eggs, she signals to him, and he releases the sperm, and it all mixes up, and that's how they go about their life. They do this repeatedly, and females can actually collect several males over the course of their life, something like I think. The record is seven or eight at this point, uh, each of them producing sperm for her whenever she beckons. And she'll go about eating all that she can. She's got a huge stomach because and a huge mouth because she needs to be able to tackle whatever prey is down there because you get so few opportunities. But that is the plight of the male anglerfish. Uh,
0: this book uh, is... Coming out around Halloween. Yes. Good timing.
1: Yes, I think that was intentional. Yes. <laughs> uh,
0: I think that uh, you reserve some of your most uh, horrifying critters for the end. I love the velvet worm. This yeah. thing is six inches long. I can't imagine, even at only six inches, it would be a terror to see one of those things.
1: They're, I mean, yeah, but they're also surprisingly beautiful. They have some, some species have this remarkable coloration. Um, They look superficially like a snake with legs, little stubby legs, um, but they're not. They're they're a very unique group of animals. Um, And what they do to hunt in their own unique way is to fling jets of slime at their prey. What they have on the front of their mouths are two modified legs that spray this glue. And if it hits, uh, say, a cricket or something, it locks it down onto whatever the cricket is standing on. Then the velvet worm is free to take its time to amble up and suck the life out of it with these really amazing two front, almost jaw-like appendages that are also evolved from feet. So what this critter has done is turned four of its many feet into very useful hunting tools. Those uh, eating
0: appendages are straight out of the the dream nightmares
1: of H.R. Giger. (laughs) It <laughs> mm-hmm. looks like they almost like uh, knives. They're, they're kind of curved and, and serrated. They're they're pretty gnarly. But so, uh, on top of all that horrific hunting, they're a very beautiful, very fascinating creature. And the geography uh, cone snail as yes. well. Yeah.
0: The illustration on that, you just look at that and you just think, "Oh my god!" Ugh. Yeah. <laughs> so, but there's more going on than just what you see in the illustration.
1: Yeah. So. People are probably familiar with that cone snail because it has extremely powerful venom and it can kill a human being, in fact, it's so powerful. Um, This is a predatory snail, if you can imagine it. Uh, It is going after fish and and typically, you've probably heard of the cone snail, It, it will amble up to something and inject it, fire a harpoon into it, inject it with venom and then slurp it down. But the geography cone snails is a part of a group of these cone snails that goes about things a bit differently. Instead of attacking, say, one fish, they can go after a group of fish, uh, which sounds impossible for a snail to be doing. But what they're actually doing, it seems, is releasing a cloud of insulin in the water. And that's not snail insulin, because snail insulin is distinct from fish insulin. What the snail has somehow done is, over evolutionary time, evolved insulin that is fish-like. And what actually happens is it overloads the fish's system and they go into a kind of shock, it's uh, it's just like in a daze. And while they are doing that, the snail is free to take its time, not unlike the velvet worm. Uh, When you have these powerful weapons, you don't need to be fast. Uh, It takes its time and actually unfurls this huge mouth around several fish at a time and then locks them in there. And then it will actually, instead of firing the harpoon externally, like its, its cousins do, it picks them off one by one in its mouth by firing individual harpoons in each one to deliver the killer blow. And then it's on to digesting. Uh,
0: I, one of the things I think about this book is that it almost reads like science fiction in many ways. It, it, it's really in, in entertaining and engaging.
1: Uh, did you? How did you find these creatures? So I used to do a column called Absurd Creature of the Week at Wired. Uh, we're no longer doing that, but we are doing a weekly show called Absurd Creatures. Uh, it comes out every Monday. That's my little plug. Um, so what I was doing for about two and a half years of writing that column is whenever I came across a weird critter through reading or, or watching documentaries, I would just add it to a list. And at one point, I had something like 150 different creatures in the spreadsheet. Um, so it, it, it's... You're right, it is weirdly sci-fi-ness going on here in nature. And that's I think that's a testament to the amazing power of evolution to craft all these things. Because It's not like somebody set out and said, I want to make a marsupial have sex until it dies. Like, by <laughs> some whim, that'd be funny to see. It wasn't like that. It, it, there are ways to explain it through evolutionary theory. So I, what I hope comes across in the book is that First of all, people don't think I'm lying, That I'm just making these up. These are actual creatures out there, nature doing some amazing things, uh, sometimes doing terrible things to other creatures. But it it would be hard to make this up, right? I mean, I wish I could have written a sci-fi book with all these to show off my enormous intellect and creativity. Unfortunately, I don't have that, so I'm just going straight to the the nonfiction.
0: Barry Levinson is a
1: director who's well-known for his movie
0: Diner. Uh, cheerful bit of americana not so much for a movie he made called the bay which was an extremely Mm. terrorizing movie that was based around the tongue eating
1: isopod Mm -hmm. yeah i i I think i in my research for that one i had come across a trailer for that and watched probably about 15 seconds of it before i turned it off no way (laughs) (laughs) I I do not screw around with movies like that. It's really terrifying. So tell us about
0: this isopod. What are
1: isopods? So isopods are actually crustaceans. And and interestingly, you can have terrestrial isopods as well, roly-polies or pill bugs, however you want to call them. Those are crustaceans, Mm. Uh, an isopod that is related, distantly related to the ones that you would find in the ocean. Um, Down in the very depths of the ocean, you can have giant isopods, which I believe is mentioned in the book. Um, they can grow about a foot long. They're huge. It looks like essentially a giant pill bug. Uh, it's really... I've seen
0: pictures of those yeah. things.
1: They they are uh, unsettlingly terrifying. Very, very terrifying. Um, and uh, they can go a very long time without eating. Uh, they had Someone had kept one in captivity in Japan for many years, and it didn't eat a thing, uh, yet still somehow survived. Um, but you get... Isopods come in a, a range of, of different specialties. And what the Tongini isopod has specialized in is devouring fish tongues. So what it does is, unlike the giant isopod, which is sitting down at the bottom, this isopod is actually floating around with uh, plankton, little tiny creatures that are at the mercy of the currents to get around. So what it does is it it sniffs out. Snapper, red snapper, is, is the fish that they're predominantly going after. There are a lot of actually... Isopods that attack fish tongues, but only in the red snapper does this isopod attach to it, suck it dry, and replace it functionally as a tongue. And what that does is it keeps the fish alive. The fish can still eat by rubbing this isopod that is now its tongue to grind stuff against the roof of its mouth. It's a brilliant adaptation. It's 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 hard to look at. The illustration in the book is <laughs> is is based on a picture that is just it's it's difficult. <laughs> so what's interesting about these in particular is it is difficult to find the snapper if you're floating around it's a lot like the anglerfish is having a hard time finding a mate it's a big open ocean out there um so if an isopod lands in a snapper's gills it stays there it hunkers down only if another isopod comes into that fish will that first one move to the tongue latch on and begin feeding on it. And they all start out male, but that one now turns into a female. And she is getting all those nutrients, sucking up the blood and and functionally replacing the tongue while a line of males are actually lining up in the gills getting ready to fertilize her. So what the fish has the indignity of is not only losing its tongue and having it replaced by an isopod, a parasitic isopod, Those isopods are now mating in its mouth, and once that is done, the female will let go. She'll either fall out of the the snapper's mouth or will be swallowed, but it doesn't matter because she's already released all of her young into the environment. Uh, This is uh,
0: to continue the delightful horror show. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That uh, one problem that uh, creatures face evolutionarily is. Where to where to stash the babies? Yes, uh, babies are by virtue of just being born somewhat less helpless, uh, right. especially if you are a maggot. Mm-hmm. Uh, so talk about the ant decapitating fly. Oh, that's Such a good one. That's a is, mind boggling.
1: It is also one of the best names for a creature you could possibly come up with. <laughs> I love that uh, you, scientists have this this cliche about them that they're boring and and too sanitizing this this whole process of science but they're in fact really fascinating people like because they're i mean in my writing of the column and, and researching the book they're often only just one person on the planet researching this one creature and that has to make them that's by association association that makes them an interesting person i think <laughs> but anyway the uh, the anticapitating fly is is uh incredible it it will search out fireflies in particular. Or oh, sorry, excuse me. Um, I'm totally blanking on the ant's name. Um, fire that's... ant. Sorry, it's fire, fire ant. It's not a firefly. This is a fly. Um, so what it does is it hovers over the colony, which is at this point freaking out. They know the colony knows what's happening when these flies show up. And what it does, it's a tiny, tiny fly, much smaller than these ants, and it will swoop down and jam its ovipositor, which is its egg-laying kind of like a needle, into the ant and inject a maggot. Excuse me, an egg. That egg hatches into a maggot, which then works its way through the body of the ant and into the head. What's remarkable about this system is that that ant stops acting like a normal ant. What the fly is able to do as the maggot in the brain is release some sort of chemical that convinces the ant to march out of its colony down into the leaf litter where the humidity is optimal for the growth of the maggot. The maggot then releases another chemical that dissolves the membranes holding the ant together and pops the ant's head off while it's still snugly in it. So, now what it has is a nice little place to develop in a wonderfully humid place of the forest. What's interesting about ants is they have this thing called social immunity. You have this big colony that is under attack, often by many different kinds of parasites. So, the ants need to be able to figure out when someone among them is acting strangely, because that could be a sign that something bad is spreading in the colony. So, the ant will then march itself out of the colony at the behest of the fly which is ordering it away because if it isn't ordered away it will be caught and taken into a graveyard and dumped and that's the end of both of the lives of the ant and the maggot in its head it's a fascinating way that ants over the millennia have have developed this as a social structure because you've got to be able to protect what is essentially a super organism
0: that's really amazing um, as is what you call the asp caterpillar, mm-hmm. um, this uh, is has a similar uh, sensibility to uh, the flannel moth, and it, it this uh, brings up a topic
1: that most people will wish they had never heard: urticating hairs. Yeah, urticating hairs, not not fun. You may be familiar with tarantulas. Tarantulas have this actually; they have these hairs on their bums, actually, that they can kick off with their back legs to get in the air, uh, to get into the eyes, ideally, of an attacking predator. I have a story in the book about one unfortunate soul in, I believe it was Britain, a guy who was cleaning his tarantula's tank, with the tarantula still in it, of course, and looked to his side, and he saw this cloud of hairs, and it hit him in the eye, got lodged, he had to go to the hospital. It was several weeks later that he determined that he should probably go to the hospital for this. Um, and then realized, oh, it might have been when my tarantula kicked a bunch of these irritating hairs in my eyeball, and they just embed. They're very sharp, and it's it's bad, bad news. So you also find these sorts. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah, you you find these sorts of hairs also on this asp caterpillar, as it is known. You find these in the Americas. It has this big flowing head of hair? It looks like a crawling wig. And I have an entomologist friend who calls it the Donald Trump caterpillar. So those hairs are going to ruin your day if they get on your skin. They're very irritating or, heaven forbid, in your eyes. Uh, but that is not really all you have to worry about with this asp Caterpillar because hidden underneath those hairs are spines connected to venom glands. Touch one of these and you're in a lot of trouble. It is, from what I've read, just an astonishingly painful experience. Uh, like you've been hitting the arm with a hammer, things like that. The problem is, when you get these big blooms of these creatures, they, they have a problem, in, in particular in Texas, you have kids coming out and thinking, that is a cuddly little caterpillar. I would love to pick it up and play with it, at which point they're stung, and it's, it's an excruciating venom. So the thing with caterpillars is that this makes a good amount of sense because they're, they're helpless. They're a crawling bag of meat with lots of predators. But... Uh, it won't take very long for a predator to learn in a very hard way that you are not to mess with the asp caterpillar. Let's lighten the subject yes, a bit. Yes, sure. <laughs> uh,
0: In the ocean, one of the problems is that uh, there's lots of predators, and if unless you can swim really fast, you're just uh, sitting meat. And so... The ocean sunfish has a unique
1: means of uh, getting around this. It really does. It is uh, a magnificent fish. It looks, it's essentially a saucer. It's, it's a huge. beautiful. They have
0: one yeah. at the Monterey
1: Bay Aquarium, yeah. I believe. Yeah, they, yeah, they do. Um, it is essentially a saucer with two big fins, one poking out the top and one poking out the bottom. It doesn't look like any fish you've ever seen. Um, and it gets around by, by moving those, those fins around as opposed to a fin at the back. Uh, This can grow to 10 feet long, um, which is sizable for a fish, and it's, in fact, the largest bony fish in the sea. Um, The largest fish in general would be the whale shark, which is cartilaginous. So the problem that you have as a fish is your reproduction is a bit willy-nilly. It is a matter of releasing your eggs into the sea, and the males releasing sperm, they mix together, and ideally you get fertilization. But when you do that, you're essentially just throwing out your young to fend for themselves with lots of predators that would love nothing more than to get a free meal and a cloud of of eggs. The ocean sunfish takes a unique approach in that it can release at one time, the world record, and this was in a a female, about half her maximum size, she released 300 million eggs. That's 300 million eggs. 300 million, which is the world record for fecundity. It is astonishing. So... Back to me bringing this down with very depressing news about nature. <laughs> on average, for a, a mating pair of sunfishes, you're going to have two offspring that survive to, the, to to go on to the next generation. Um, that's replacing their parents in the population. You get fluctuations in populations up and down with introductions of predators or, or natural disasters and things like that. But two of 300 million will survive. That is unfortunate odds. But what happens is you get the two that seem to be best fitted to their environment, and they are the ones that are driving evolution of a species. The the best fitted are going to survive. The rest of them, unfortunately, almost 300 million of them will perish. Continuing with the more charming side of your book, you do
0: have the sociable weaver. This is a bird of which I've never
1: heard, and it has a very unique house. It does. Perhaps the most unique house in the animal kingdom. Uh, what they do is build nests like you've never seen before. They're absolutely enormous. Um, these, these call Southern Africa home. You'll find uh, trees that are just completely burdened by these things. They're enormous. Uh, you can have hundreds of individuals of, in this one nest. And they're building their own individual chambers, but they're all kind of linked together in this one house. What that does is you get some measure of climate control that you wouldn't get in a typical nest. When the nest heats up during the day, that heat carries over into the night. So you get kind of like a toasty warm, about 70 degrees in that chamber throughout the night when temperatures are are plummeting. So you have these birds working in concert to create one of the most incredible structures in the animal kingdom they're well, social animals they're they? social so they're social which is interesting from an evolutionary perspective because ideally you don't want to be spending energy and resources and time putting together something that's going to benefit other creatures right you are out there to worry about you so what the sociable weaver has is kind of a a shaky society right you have to somehow be able to get everybody participating in repairing the nest and building the nest and all of that so indeed what you have are cheaters you have cheaters who (laughs) will slack off they will build perhaps they'll, they'll fix their own part of the nest they'll they'll bring in some nice bedding to put in there more than they should be and they're not helping out building the nest as a whole Tax cheats. Tax cheats, exactly, Um, which brings in the authorities. Essentially, you have (laughs) really you have um, birds that will notice this and actually attack the cheaters. So you you get this actually a lot in uh, in zoos where you can observe this. They'll actually chase the cheaters around, um, and they have been actually observed finding like getting a hold of it and giving it a good pecking. That hasn't actually been observed in nature. They've just seen them chasing these things off. And indeed it works. So what you see is these these birds will come back and start doing more of their fair share. So you have this social structure kind of overriding this notion that you have to be selfish at all times. It's it's kind of a beautiful story that's... among stories that are not maybe so beautiful. about.
0: <laughs> well, that's an interesting uh uh, evolution uh, evolutionary twist uh, uh, in a sense an evolution to a point where it's um, counter-evolving. right now that's one of the fascinating aspects of the book now let's cut back to the grossness yes uh, hagfish yeah <laughs> hagfish. That, that's that's got I think that's one of the lower rungs on the scale as far as names go yeah <laughs> yeah and, and what it does and lifestyles well. oh, yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah, so the hackfish you will also find in the sea. Um, Like a caterpillar, it's essentially a bag of flesh. It's very vulnerable to sharks and whatnot. Um, It is a specialist in carcasses. It'll it'll find a whale that has fallen down to the bottom of the sea, and it will actually get inside of it, burrow into it, and can actually absorb nutrients through its skin in addition to being able to chew on the carcass itself. So, the problem is it's blind, pretty much, um, and there are a lot of other creatures after that carcass, including things like sharks. So it needs to have some sort of defense lest it get eaten up with the whale carcass. What it has evolved is snot. It's weaponized snot. What you'll get if you pinch a hagfish is an injection of this really nasty cloud of goo. It's, it's clear, but it's it's actually... There's threads in it. What happens is the hackfish has these glands that eject this mucus, but also these very, very strong threads that are coiled up in individual cells. Uh, when you, say, struggle, if you're in this cloud, that just tangles up these threads even more. And you can actually get to the point where you are suffocating a shark. If you have enough goo in its mouth, it gets into its gills and severely decreases the flow of water over those. And it can actually suffocate to death. It has a weaponized snot, and in a pretty amazing way and has really thrown one at the sharks. We get They get all the glory winning all those battles, but not against the hagfish.
0: <laughs> uh, one of the high points of your research for this book was witnessing the mating ritual of one of uh, the critters you talk about yes. in here.
1: Yes, the axolotl salamander. Um, there's a lab at UC Irvine that is studying the axolotl salamander because it has amazing powers of regeneration which we can get to in a second but the mating is the funny part so they have this lab where they mate these axolotls um, and they actually share them with other labs for research the mating for the axolotl is interesting in the sense that it's a little uh it's iffy it's it's you they just don't go right at it there's a bit of uh posturing, the male's kind of dancing around a little bit. He's doing some, some push-ups and things like that to get the female's attention. So when I was there, uh, they had a mating session for me. The scientists put this on, which is very generous <laughs> of him. Um, Of these two salamanders, um, the male in all of this ritual seemed to be getting frustrated. Uh, he was rocketing around, sometimes violently. This, the female didn't seem to be at all interested in him. Um, so he's, he's going back and forth, front of the tank, back to the tank, very frustrated it seems. Uh, he comes to the front of the tank and he's looking at me. I don't know if he can see me, but it looks like he's looking at me. I want to believe that. Uh, and he throws up. <laughs> like he's looking at me for like advice. Can you do anything for me here? Help me out here. But he threw up and that was uh, when the scientists called it. That was the end of that mating session. It's not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the other critters you
0: meet mentioned that I've seen pictures of now, and it's one of these things that they're pretty small, they're very small, but were they to be big, they'd just be a terror, and this is the water bear, Mm. which which, as you suggest, we can all go out and
1: make some water bear pets of our own. You certainly could. The water bear is a tiny, tiny microscopic critter that lives in pretty much any soil you can find, so if you have a microscope at home, you can go in your backyard, get some dirt. Uh, drop it in a Petri dish, add a little water, and if you look in there, you will see these little, almost like gummy bears with eight legs instead of four. Uh, They probably taste nothing like gummy bears, though, so I wouldn't eat them. But they are remarkable survivors because they live in a harsh environment. If you're in the dirt, that can very easily dry out. Um, So they have evolved an incredible array of resistances to heat and cold and radiation you can boil them and they will survive you really can freeze them freeze them to almost absolute zero and they will survive they go into this state um, it's almost like a hibernation they kind of curl in on themselves and dehydrate in that state they can survive almost anything they actually took these bears put them in a rocket and sent them to space and exposed them to the vacuum of space they survive fine they expose them to the radiation in space, which you would never find on Earth because we have this wonderful atmosphere protecting and This us. is
0: like a Japanese monster movie. It's, and then it, they came down and they were 100 feet long.
1: Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> like Rampage of Tokyo. Good work, scientists. <laughs> Appreciate that. Um, so it's, it's an incredible survivor. Um, and scientists are just beginning to understand how this is all possible. It's, it's absolutely incredible. You're right. It, 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 we're lucky it didn't come back and destroy us all, firing into space. <laughs> Rudely. Um, These guys what, they haven't seen the green slime or the Andromeda strain? These scientists
0: need to get themselves up on uh, pop culture. I suppose uh, there are some, uh, there's critters in here that you just read the name of and you know what their problem is. And (laughs) satanic leaf-tailed gecko.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Oh, I got that one down. Which is a. Amazingly metal name for a a creature. Yeah, yeah. What a great band. (laughs) Satanic leaf-tailed geckos. If only leaf-tailed geckos could form bands, Mm -hmm. alas. So this is both satanic-looking and leaf-looking. You'll find these in the forests of Madagascar. They are incredible. And Vladimir did an amazing job illustrating these. They look like leaves. They're a dead ringer for leaves. What they have is a tail that actually has bits missing, as if it had rotted away as a leaf. And on its spine, it has kind of a white line with veins running down its body. It is a dead ringer for a leaf. And that's good for it because it has plenty of predators in the forests of Madagascar. And I, this is one, I, I think, the most fascinating illustrations of natural selection. So you have is when... Creatures are born. Say offspring are not all exactly the same kind of... Well, not the same creature. They don't look exactly the same. They might behave a bit differently. That's variation. That comes about because when genes come together between the mom and the dad, you get unique pairings of those genes each time. You also get mutations that sneak in to make you, say, look a little bit more like a leaf. So over the generations... The geckos that look more like leaves are the ones that survive because they're not picked off by predators. And over time, you get more and more and more looking like a leaf because you've set down this path of, of evolution. It's it's an incredible illustration. And it's just it's mind-blowing, the power of natural selection. I think that uh, one of
0: the joys of reading this book is to understand how natural selection works. And I think that in these examples, um, the extremity of the example is itself gives you a clue. is the clearest evidence of how powerful this force is, and how it can shape so many unique things. Yeah,
1: yeah. It is, and it, it it's also what's so amazing about it is it can happen really quickly. You, you like to think of evolution as this thing that takes millions upon millions of years to craft creatures, and, and indeed it does. But you can get it on these very small timescales. I have an illustration of this in the book, which is a a moth, a peppered moth in Britain. Britain had itself a little industrial revolution, and with that came a lot of pollutants in the environment. And you're actually getting trees that were getting coated black. And that was bad news for this moth because it's kind of a cream speckled color, which would very much stand out on bark. So what you had over the course of just a couple of decades is the population shifting from being white-colored to blacker and that's because you have this variation you had when this industrial re- re- excuse me revolution started these ones were getting picked off uh, the ones that were born slightly darker blended in better and they survived so over the generations this is favored it was selected for and you get a moth that has in very short time switched from being cream colored to almost black and one can only imagine <clears throat> the evolution
0: that brought forth the assassin bug, yeah. which is uh, a, a really great, horrific picture and itself a really bizarre
1: uh, accommodation. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, the bizarreness of it, I think, is comes from Darwin himself, who, who came across these in his travels uh, aboard the Beagle. Um, he caught one, and this to me just stuck out so much like a sci-fi story. You have these... <laughs> guy's on a spaceship. They have this weird alien creature in the middle of the table and they're, they're messing around with it because it's so fascinating to them. This is essentially what was happening uh, uh, in South America when, when Darwin caught one of these. He put it on the table and the guys were actually taking turns having the assassin bug pierce their skin and drink their blood. And what the assassin <laughs> bug has is this amazing mouth part called a rostrum. and It's essentially a needle that it slams into its prey. It typically uh, bugs ants termites, other things like that, that pierces the cuticle and sucks out the insides. But there are species that go after mammals, uh, livestock, for instance, in South America, but also go after humans. Um, This is the one that Darwin and his friends were messing around with. The problem with letting the assassin bug draw your blood is that it can transmit transmit a very, very nasty disease um, that can lead to heart problems and, and death later on in life. And indeed, this is what some scholars have figured caused darwin's ills later in life that's a for debate it's a weirdly hotly debated topic uh, still really um yeah there's how there's all interesting kinds of theories that, that some people thought he was just lactose intolerant other people thought he had this disease from the assassin bug that he was he, he would actually wake up in the middle of the night in south america and can feel them running over his body they're pretty pretty large bugs um so the matter of, of darwin's demise is of some uh, debate still but but this this bug is is ferocious. It is an amazing hunter. They call it the assassin bug for a reason. One of its uh, little tricks is to coat itself in its enemies. It has kind of a sticky cuticle. What it does is it'll attack ants, suck them dry, and then add the carcass to its back. Uh, I call this the backpack of my enemies. And what it does is it builds them up. So you get like this, it's a almost a hump on its back of stacked carcasses. What that does is actually theoretically, it bestows it the smell of what it's hunting, the the pheromones and whatnot of the ants. So it's better able to sneak up on other ants. It also might serve a purpose as a defensive measure. You might think of a predator coming in, taking a bite out of it, and getting nothing but a mouthful of corpses. Less than ideal. Um, (laughs) But these things go even further with this just maniacal hunting. They will pierce an ant or a termite um, on the mound... Mm-hmm. And will actually sit on the ledge and dangle that dead ant over the edge, which attracts the other colony mates, and it picks them off one by one, dangling its comrades, and just builds up this big backpack of its enemies. It's just you—you you don't think of insects as being capable of this sort of diabolical, conniving, strategizing, but. They do indeed have some very amazing hunting strategies.
0: Am I mistaken, or is that
1: a tool-using insect? That's a that's a great great question. That's a, that's a crazy debate. Tool use. <laughs> that's, I don't know if we want to go down that road, but yeah, I, I, <laughs> I think mean- you might. You could you could argue that it is using the corpse as a, a sort of tool. Um, just like anybody
0: else, I love my shrimp cocktails. I do not like the shrimp that. They come, that, that go into them to be able to snap off my finger <laughs> <laughs> with their claws. Yeah. That is the province of one of the two terrifying shrimp you introduced us to. Let's start with the mantis shrimp. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Mantis shrimp uh, is so named because it has these claws not unlike uh, a mantis. Uh There are two types of this shrimp. Uh, There are the smashers and the spears. Um, They are both astonishingly fast. The spears have what you would consider to look like mantis claws. Uh, What they do is they hide in a burrow and they wait for a fish to come over the top of it and lunge out and fire these arms out and snag the fish and bring it back in and devour it. It's lightning fast. You, you, You have to have a very high speed camera to be able to capture this attack at all. The other ones that that I focus more on in the book are the smashers. Um, These are essentially boxers. Instead of spearing their prey, what they do is they punch them to death. Um, They have these two appendages in the front of their face that hit so hard and so fast that when it makes impact with something like a snail shell it heats it to the temperature of the surface of the sun momentarily. And that happens because it forms these cavitation bubbles. And when these bubbles collapse, it give off not only incredible heat, but light. So you get a one-two punch. You get the original punch of the the shrimp, but also these bubbles exploding produce a shockwave. So in this way, the mantis shrimp can actually blow the limbs off of crabs. (laughs) And cleverly, what it does, it'll actually target the crab's pincers first. Blow those off, so it doesn't have to worry about getting its eyes nipped off, um, and then systematically dismantle the rest of the, the, the crab with its punches. And it, it doesn't just attack crabs, it goes after snails, it can, it can demolish just about anything. It's incredibly powerful. So It's interesting that they went down these two different evolutionary paths, right? You have the spears doing their thing, and the smashers doing theirs, and they both end up doing very well for themselves.
0: depending on what you eat is what you survive uh
1: there's a worm that eats bones there is a very very unique worm and not something that you would think would be digestible but indeed <laughs> it is um this is another creature that you'll fall you find on on whale falls whale carcasses when everybody else has carted off all of the flesh, which you would expect from <laughs> sharks and things like that, the bone-eating worm says, nah, "I'm not stopping there. I'm going to eat these bones." What it does is, it'll it, its offspring are floating around in the plankton at the bottom of the sea, uh, and should they be so lucky, they'll come across a whale or some other corpse, um, and there specialize in eating bone they'll actually land on the bone and start growing into it by releasing acid Um, and it starts to dissolve it and actually burrows its way down into the bone all the while soaking up the nutrients that it can extract from this whale and you actually find whales with these coatings of worms these beautiful red things uh, with these kind of frilly bits that poke up and and get oxygen (laughs) but the business end is the part that's burrowed down into this whale bone. It's somehow able to dissolve the bone and then extract nutrients from it. In the desert, uh, life is, is
0: difficult and you give us a creature that has to develop. Um, uh, the same protection works against two different ends of the spectrum, ants and
1: lions, mm. the pangolin. The pangolin, yes, uh, a f- totally fascinating creature doesn't look like any mammal you would expect uh, <laughs> to find it looks more like a lizard yeah um, it has what seem to be scales all over its body this is actually keratin that you find in fingernails it's fingers covered with fingernails It's essentially just a bunch of fingernails <laughs> um which is important that you have a little bit of flexibility like keratin provides because what these are up against are lions which are no pushovers uh what you'll get is a lion approaching a pangolin, and this pangolin will curl in on itself into almost a perfect sphere. And these 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 scales are not only kind of pliable, because that, that lion will get its claw in there and kind of pull at it, and it bends instead of breaking. Uh, but they're also very sharp, and they can they can snap off bits of flesh. And indeed, and a naturalist who tangled with one this way, he was kind of pulling at it. Um, the pangolin can move the scales, can slap, kind of slap them down, and took off a chunk of this guy's finger. Um, but the, the pangolin is uh, a, a totally fascinating creature. There's been, unfortunately a lot of trouble. It's, it's perhaps the most trafficked mammal on Earth. It's using traditional medicine. Um, so there is actually a, a growing movement to get this thing protected, and it's actually picking up steam. So, so hopefully this remarkable creature will be around fighting lions for, for many more millennia to come. Rats are always a,
0: <clears throat> a favorite province. I recently spoke with Carl Hyacin, who based his latest book in part on the Gambian Pouched Rat, which was a nine inch mm. rat that was sold for as a pet, didn't work out because it carried the monkeypox mm. virus. Mm-hmm. Um, also, people didn't want to buy a giant rat for a pet. What <laughs> <Quite> a surprise. <laughs> but now it's loose and running around in Florida, of yeah, course. Of course. What for- a
1: better place. Florida, Land of Invasive Species. Land of Invasive Species.
0: Uh, You have a a rat that has,
1: the crested rat has a very unique defense. Incredibly unique. Um, This rat is also no pushover, but it goes about (laughs) life a little bit differently than the penguin. Um, What it does is it tracks down a very special type of tree with a very, very nasty bark and roots. Uh, What it does is it chews this up and slathers it on its side. has a, a special bit of its flank. It's colored black and white. And in this are special hairs that are actually a, a larger hair that has encapsulated other hairs. So it's actually it's a, almost a cylinder with holes in it, and in this are regular hairs. So what it does is actually that soaks up more of this very nasty poison. What happens if something like a lion or a... Uh, dogs actually can go to these things as well, which is unfortunate. Um, you get some very, very severe reactions. If they bite down on this part of the body, it immediately hits the mucus, and the mucus absorbs it and puts them in shock and heart attacks and, the, and really terrible stuff like that. It's so powerful that, that people in Africa have been using this for millennia as a, a, a poison for darts to bring down elephants. So you can imagine what it would do to smaller attackers for this crested rat. What's fascinating about that even further is that that black and white coloring, it will actually raise it up to make it appear bigger and more conspicuous if something looks like it's going to attack it. What it appears to be doing is actually inviting a bite. What it wants to do, if it's going to get bitten, if it seems inevitable, it wants to get bitten on that spot because the effects of the poison are so instantaneous that the predator is just on the ground, rolling around in agony. Uh, so it's 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 also brings up these questions about how did this evolve? How did it? How is it able to chew on this stuff without itself dropping dead if, dead if this is something that could bring down an elephant? So lots of questions there, but it's it's an amazing way to to defend yourself if you're brave enough to chew this stuff up.
0: A tool-using rat? Mm-hmm. Also not. <laughs> that is a that is something that sits very uneasily in my conscience. <laughs> The last thing I want to see is a rat with a gun. I'm with you. with you on that. <laughs> Were there any creatures in that you wanted to write about but didn't make the cut?
1: Uh, yeah. Um, what was your favorite? What was my favorite that, that didn't make the cut or that's in the book? That didn't make the cut. That didn't make the cut. Uh, shoot, I'm trying to think. What didn't? Uh, I know some didn't quite make it. Huh. What was your favorite in the book? Yeah, that's easier for me to... I have a terrible memory. That's easier for me <laughs> to answer. Uh, my favorite in the book uh, is unique among the creatures in the book in that the perpetrator isn't an animal. It's not a plant. It's actually fungus, which is is, is neither of those things. It's the Ophiocordyceps vom- zombifying fungus. What this does, like the anti decapitating fly, is attack ants. Um, and I'll get into... This kind of in a little bit of detail because it's so incredibly fascinating. What happens is a spore of this fungus lands on an ant's cuticle, um, and when it does, when it does that, is it sticks and starts developing pressure in this kind of bubble, and at the same time, it's secreting chemicals that are breaking down the cuticle. Uh, that pressure in that little button eventually gets to the pressure of a 747 tire, which is highly pressurized. And what happens is it actually blows itself into the ant's body, at which point the ant is in very serious trouble because things are going to get rough for it. The fungus uh, propagates in the ant and eventually grows to take up something like 50% of its body. Um, And like the anticapitating fly, it starts to mind control the ant. And mind you, a fungus has no brain of its own, which is pretty fascinating. Yet it's not even getting into the brain. It grows around the brain and seems to be secreting certain chemicals that convince the ant to go to a very, very specific spot in the forest. And that is along its well-worn trail, I think it's about eight inches off the ground, It drives it up into the tree and makes it bite down on the vein of a leaf, at which point the ant dies and the fungus erupts out of the back of its head as a stalk. And because it's above the colony's well-worn trails, it rains down those spores that then infect the other members of the colony, which is incredible. That's mind control that is oddly very common across the animal kingdom and across different phylum. So I was actually just in a lab about a month ago of David Hughes at Penn State, who's working on trying to figure out how on earth a fungus is able to mind control an ant to always a very specific spot in the forest when it has no brain of its own. What they're finding, fascinatingly, is that it is growing throughout the muscles. And when it does that, it actually pries apart the fibers and severs the neurons. So there's no way for the ant's brain to communicate with those muscles now. So then we might ask, well, how is it moving around? And it appears that the fungus might be replacing the nervous system in a way by secreting chemicals that kind of mimic these neurotransmitters that the ant would typically produce. So that these are this is just very early goings of this research, but somehow this ant is thriving up into the the forest at the behest of a fungus and it has to do with chemicals, it has to do with actually physically taking over the muscles. But it's such a fascinating system and it's it's actually you'll find Each ant species in the forest probably has its very own species of this fungus, Ophiocorticeps, that has specialized over evolutionary time to ruining the day of this one species and this one species only. And interestingly, you'll find this Ophiocordyceps in other creatures that aren't social insects, like ants. You'll find them in spiders, tarantulas sometimes, and beetles, and things like that. For those, it just grows throughout it, takes over its body, and doesn't have to mind control it. Because again, what ants have is this very unique, effective system of social immunity. If they see something that's acting weird, they have to kick it out of the colony. So if the fungus were to get in the colony and not mind control the ant up into the the rainforest, it would be found out and dumped in a grave. And it doesn't happen. The ant's behavior isn't all that weird until the fungus drives it out of the colony.
0: I've been speaking with Matt Simon. His new book is The Wafs that brainwashed the Caterpillar.
1: Thank you for joining me, Matt. Thank you very much for having me.
0: You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom
1: agony.